0: Welcome back to Reading for a Change, a podcast from Moody Publishers, where we take a look at the books that are transforming our lives and shaping the world. Uh, I'm Drew Dick. Uh, I'm really excited about today's episode. We're joined by Brian Fickert. I'll introduce him in a moment. And the topic for this episode is Raving the Ivory Tower, which sounds kind of spooky and violent, (laughs) and I'll explain what that means in a second. Uh, Today, actually, you know, uh, Trillian Newbell. Uh, best-selling author and speaker, who has been joining me as a podcast for this season, too. Unfortunately, is not able to be with me for this one, but she'll be back for our next episode. Just in case you were wondering where Trillia was, uh, she'll be back. Um, So let me introduce Brian. Uh, You're familiar with him if you've read his books or you listened to our last episode, but Brian is founder and president of the Chalmers Center. He's a professor of economics and community development at Covenant College. And the co-author of many books, including When Helping Hurts and uh, Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream, profound paradigm shifting book. I don't, uh, I'm totally serious when I say that. Um, If you didn't catch our last episode, I encourage you to go back and listen to that one where we get into that a little more. And of course, check out the book on Amazon or MoodyPublishers.com. Again, Becoming Whole. Well, Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be with you, Drew. Thank you for joining us again. Um, and, you know, this time I do want to talk a little more um, about the writing life, because part of this podcast, we talk about reading. We got book lovers that that um, listen to this. We also have people, though, that are writers or aspiring writers. And so they're curious about the process. They kind of like to take a, a peek behind the curtain. Uh And specifically, I want to home in on your kind of interesting intersection, that is being an academic who writes for a popular audience. Now, we all know that all academics write, but sometimes they write journal articles that are read by maybe 15 people (laughs) Um, and that's okay. They're like breaking ground in their field. Right. Uh, And they have, and they write in this tangled academic prose that's full of jargon. Um, but you, I'm sure you've done that too, but you're also writing for a popular audience. Um, but first, let me say this at the risk of offending you and academics everywhere, most academics can't do this. They can't write in a way That is understandable and helpful for ordinary folks. Why do you think that is? (laughs) (laughs) There's so many reasons. (laughs) Um, Wow,
1: a couple things. The the, the first is that um, the training that we receive works against this in so many ways. We we are. given highly technical training. I mean, I, I, I'm an economist and, uh, as an undergraduate, I was a math major and that was not enough math to get me through my doctoral program in economics. I learned more math. And so I'm trained in highly, a highly technical field, math and statistics and, 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 um, what, what it takes to learn that stuff is it, hard. And, and, um, and so you, you emerge from your doctoral program with this highly technical training. And you've been, quite frankly, around people for, in my case, seven years who are like that. And um, you start to think that that's normal. And, and you, <laughs> you start to think that eggheads are normal and that the whole world is full of eggheads just like you've become. And and so you actually... Um, you're pretty removed from the world and and you're kind of in this bubble. And so you don't even realize it's jargon anymore. Sure. It's just the way you talk. Um, and, and, uh, and then what happens is that the incentives of academia are completely opposed to running for popular audiences. Promotions and tenure and even just peer accolades are are all based on how many articles did you publish in those journals that three people are reading? You said 14. That was optimistic. I would say three in most cases. And so. so The entire incentive structure, both formal and informal through just kind of peer pressure is all geared towards that kind of stuff. And so Hmm. um, you don't really have an arena in which you can write to a popular audience. And then there's, there's also this thing inside of you that says, I worked like a dog to get this Ph.D. And if I write to a popular audience, I'm kind of wasting my skills. Sure. I, I, it, it's kind of below me, so to speak. And, and um, so there's kind of that internal thing. And then finally, I would just say the entire enculturation, enculturation process of grad school and in academia is highly non-relational. Um, it's, it, it's, you know, to do your doctoral dissertation, you sit in a closet for multiple years at a time and don't talk to anybody. Right. And, 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 so, and, and I think writing for a popular audience is a relational kind of thing you have to really understand your audience and be able to relate to them and connect to them. And the entire process you've been through in grad school is don't talk to human beings. (laughs) Oh yeah,
0: (laughs) totally. No. Okay. And so that's, you're, you're right. There's so many things against you when you consider that training. Um, and, um, I've talked to academics that, you know, about the possibility of writing for a broader audience. And some of them have said, They actually kind of fear the the judgment of their academic peers if they were to write a book to a wider audience because they feel like maybe they'd be oversimplifying things, which inevitably they would be. Um, So I totally get that. Now, my question is, obviously, you're the exception. You've been able to cross this this divide um, and not just sell books that are um, for a popular audience, but books that have done very well Um, and and a lot of non, you know, uh, certainly people, uh, non-math people like me are, are finding very helpful. So how have you been able to cross that divide?
1: Yeah. So when I finished graduate school, uh, I became a professor at the University of Maryland and, you know, uh, major research university that, that fit the uh, description I gave a few minutes ago, where only one thing was valued. It wasn't, teaching wasn't valued. Uh, what was valued was publishing in uh, very abstract journals. And and um, so life was that. And um, I felt called to leave there, to go to Covenant College, and um, uh, all kinds of things behind that. Part of it was a desire to be able to think and to uh, uh, research and to write from a Christian perspective. Um, a part of it was I, I I knew that I didn't want them to write on my gravestone. You know, publish fifteen articles in academic journals, and, and <laughs> I enjoy I enjoyed it, but but I could see the end. You know, and right. it was going to kill me, and, and um, I wanted to make a difference in the world. Wanted to affect change in the world, and and um, certainly believe that research was part of that, but didn't feel like that's all there was to what God was calling me to. And so left there, went to covenant college and, and, um, you know, I'm so thankful to covenant college. They, uh, it's a school that, you know, like many Christian colleges that, um, uh, values things beyond the purely academic journals and, um, covenant college in particular really places a high value on serving the church. And, and so, um, that pushes you in a more popular direction. Hmm. And, and certainly we have faculty who are publishing uh, highly academic things, but there is also an appreciation for we're here to serve the church. And and that means being able to communicate well with a popular audience. Um, Covenant College also is a place that doesn't worship the scientific method. Uh, my My discipline really, really emphasizes the scientific method. And, Covenant College says, you know, special revelation matters. Um, Hmm. uh, And and even when we get to general revelation, the idea that um, hands on knowledge matters, practitioners know something, Uh, lay people know something, that that there's ways of knowing that um, are outside of uh, the scientific method Um, uh, means that uh, stories and anecdotes matter, That, that you can draw on tacit knowledge uh, to, 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 uh, put in a book in addition to, uh, the more scientific, um, the college has also allowed me to be a practitioner academic. So, so I have a reduced teaching load and out of that, uh, the college enabled me to create, have a space to create this thing called the Chalmers Center. Uh, and we are a church equipping organization. We try to equip churches to help people who are poor, uh, in more effective ways. And so, uh, that puts me in the space of being a practitioner, working with practitioners. And um, so it's always about connecting theory to practice. My life is about connecting theology and social science research to practice. Hmm. And so the whole arena uh, really the institutional environment I'm in has, has enabled this to happen.
0: That's great. I'm and it very, makes a lot very of very no, thankful. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense too, with that emphasis on the church, how that would yep. lead people to to be a little more practical in how they communicate yep. and who they communicate to. Um, so do you have any tips out there for, you know, for folks that are attempting to do this, either maybe they're academics that want to write for a popular audience or even, you know, uh, people that want to, uh, research academic topics and then appropriate what they find for a wider audience. Cause that happens yeah. as well, especially with journalists and, and folks like that. Yeah. Any tips for them? It,
1: yeah, I just think that good writing flows out of path. First of all, I should say I never intended to become an author. Hmm. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, when we wrote When Helping Hurts, uh, believe it or not, it was a side project. Wow. Uh, the, the Chalmers Center was uh, teaching some online courses and we had a backlog in one of our courses. And we said, you know what, why don't we write a book to get some of these ideas out there. Uh, a little bit more broadly, and we can use that instead of one of these online courses that was taking up a lot of staff time. And so this was actually meant to be a side project. And so I, so and then God had other ideas, right? And so um, suddenly I found myself uh, in a position of being an author, and, but it wasn't something I intended to be. And I kind of fell into it. Um and, and, you know, I think some people really, really, really love writing. I find it extremely difficult, <laughs> uh, very hard I'm work. With you. It exhausts me. Yep. It just it, at the end of a day of writing, I'm so, so wiped out. And so that feeds into a little bit of advice I've got. My advice is you've got to be passionate about your message. Hmm. Um, I, I, I'm i passionate enough about what I'm trying to say that it enables me to push through. The, the frustration enables me to push through the loneliness and 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 it's the desire to get the message out there that, for me, is enough to make me do it um, and then i'm I'm passionate about equipping the body of Christ, and so that frames the the style of writing, it frames the degree of sophistication of the writing. Um, I'm in love with the church, hmm. you, you know, that the, the Bible teaches that the church is the body and bride and fullness of Jesus Christ, the words of Ephesians. And so, uh, well, many are down on the church. I it's plan a uh-huh. and for me. And so I'm just, I'm all in. And, and so I'm driven by the passion for the message, passion for the vision of the local church. And, and that kind of pushes me through. Um, uh, I would say, just at a practical level. In addition to that, um, I have found that speaking and writing are very complementary. Now, some people you know, are gifted at one or the other. Um, I enjoy both, uh, it, and for me, when I speak, I'm I'm testing what I'm going to write. Yes, right. I, I'm 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 putting messages out there from the audience. I'm watching their reactions. I'm looking for what worked, what didn't work. And so my writing typically flows out of my speaking.
0: Yeah, and that makes so much sense because with writing, you don't know how it's gonna land. Uh, but with exactly. speaking, you get that immediate feedback because you can see people yep. either tuning out or or engaged and nodding, or yeah, that's that's so helpful. Um and so yeah, you've talked a little bit about the writing process. I I am with you when it comes, you know, some people say to me, Oh. The writing just flows for me. It's so easy. I love it. And I go, uh, are we doing the same thing? Because for me, (laughs) it's incredibly difficult. It's kind of like, you know, Mm -hmm. banging your head against the wall. It feels good when you stop. Um, but what is the most gratifying? Uh, you've talked about why you write. And I think that's such a great message that you have to have that bigger vision of the church and of the message. What's the most gratifying part of the process for you?
1: Yeah. For me, it's when somebody walks up to me uh, at some conference or just in church or at a coffee shop and says, Hey, I read your book and God used it in a profound way in my life. Hmm. That's it. Yeah. You, you, you know, I, I like the whole thing is, you know, look, it's fun to, to finally see it come out. It's fun to see the cover design. It's fun to check your Amazon rankings. No, it isn't. <laughs> I mean, it is. You know, it, is. it just is. You know, I, I check uh, how the Packers are doing and I check my stock values and I check to see my Amazon rankings. It's kind of a sport. I mean, it's so I get a kick yep. out of it. But that's not the real thing. The real thing is having somebody walk up to you and say, the Lord, use this. Yes. And, and and then just to say to the person, you know, praise God for that. That's so good. Praise God for what he did. That's the
0: Absolutely. thing. The rest is just window dressing. You're right. Fun to see your name on a book and all that stuff, but that gets old real quick. Um, Really quickly. When you see the impact that it's had in someone's life in the real world, that is tremendously gratifying. I absolutely agree. Okay, so listeners, if you want to check out uh, Brian's book, and I promise you will be impacted by it, it will change the way you think, the way you think about the poor, and hopefully the way you behave, I want to encourage you right now to go to MoodyPublishers.com and grab his book, Becoming Whole. Since you're a listener to the podcast, we want to give you a 50% discount on your first order. It's a limited time offer, so don't wait on it. Just enter the code when you're checking out Reading Podcast, all one word, and you'll receive the discount. Again, head to MoodyPublishers.com, enter Reading Podcast at checkout to receive 50% discount. Okay, we've come to the time of the show where we talk about the big picture, zooming out to talk about a topic related to uh, the interview we've had with Brian here. And um, man, I should have the quote in front of me, I'm going to butcher it. But the early church father, Tertullian, had this this quote where he talks about what hath Athens to to do with Jerusalem uh, and you're laughing Brian because I'm probably gonna butcher it but uh, and part of that quote is what hath the church to do with the Academy and basically he was juxtaposing you know the mission of the church and the, and the character of the church with the broader secular or Roman world um, so he, he was he's drawing this sharp line in between the church and the Academy um, Brian I'm curious to hear you though talk about how in an ideal world if, if kind of you had your druthers, and and it could look like you wanted it to. How would the church and academia relate to each other?
1: Yeah. So the the, the college that I teach at Covenant College is an agency of the Presbyterian Church in America, and so um, our board, uh, the board of the college, uh, reports to the denomination, and so I'm actually in a church-run uh, institution. And that's got its own um, strengths and weaknesses, quite frankly. But I'm I'm very much in a church academic setting. Um, I, I think each 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 of these institutions needs each, needs each other. Yeah. Uh, I think the church needs to hold the academy accountable to theological orthodoxy. Um, uh, there's something about the uh, the process of, of academic work. There's something about the kind of uh, personalities and brains that academics have that tends to make us question everything. That that um, we want to you know uh, leave no rock unturned, and we want the freedom to 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 explore. But we've got to do that within the bounds of biblical orthodoxy. And, and so, I love the fact that at that the school I teach at, um, and this is just it's like a commercial. I don't mean no, it that way no. at all. But
0: it, it's it, unusual. It, it's my joy. Oh,
1: yeah. It's my joy every year. I get to sign a statement and the statement says that I believe in the, in the inerrancy and authority of scripture. And all my colleagues get to sign that as well. And I love that. And it, it, in my particular school, I also get to sign a statement that says, I believe in the system of doctrine taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith and we're a Presbyterian school. And that grounds us, we're on the same page. We're, you know, there's th- certainly diversity in, in our perspectives on a number of things and applications. But you know, when my students leave my classroom in economics and walk down the hall and take a biology class, I know the perspective the guy down the hall is um, taking and that he's been examined. Uh, he 's been examined by by a board that is governed by our denomination and, and so um, I like that. I like being theologically grounded. I like being rooted in biblical orthodoxy, and I like the oversight uh, that the church gives us in that regard. Mm. Um, I like the fact that the that being related to a church um, Uh, uh, gives us a bent towards serving the church. It's something I mentioned earlier. Uh, uh, We have a a board or or in a constituency that'll say, uh, how are you serving us? How is the college serving us? How is your writing serving us? And and I like that. It's a pull. It's a, I don't uh, forgive the language right now, but there's a sense in which uh, my customer is the church. And, 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 And that's terrific. And, and it roots me in that. Um, I, I think the church needs the academy. Uh, uh, the, 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 the church um, needs kind of the prophetic voice of the academy sometimes. I think uh, we're actually in that moment right now in uh, our country and in, in our church. We need voices that are prophetic. And sometimes the, the academy can do that. We, uh, the academy tends to be very honest uh, and then the academy is about engaging with culture, and the church ought to be able to do that. And so I think they're complementary. They need each yes. other. And, and I, um, often there's tensions, but overall, I think we really need to be linking arms together. Yeah,
0: that's so well put. And, I mean, being in the Moody uh, universe, uh, I can echo a yeah. lot of what you said. I mean, I'm in the publisher's. Uh, but of course we have yeah. a seminary and a college and we're all about the church. And I, and whereas some people might see that as a liability, it's like, okay, yeah, you got to sign that statement of faith and you got to, you know, toe the party line. But I, I see it as a framework that gives freedom yeah. and, and keeps you grounded. Like you said, and, and I think that's a strength. And like you said, absolutely. The church needs the Academy as well. Um, Well, thank you for those thoughts. Um, We do one little uh segment in this show called have a little heart where we talk about one way that we've we've been tangibly serving and loving our neighbors. Um, And I'll go this time. uh, And this may be a bit of a stretch. You can tell me, Brian. But (laughs) so um, a while back, um, we put up a basketball hoop in our driveway. Now, this isn't just any basketball hoop. This thing's like heavy duty. Right. And it and it came and we (laughs) and instead of hiring someone to install it, which I should have, which I would do if I had to do it again, I decided to do it myself, took like a thousand pounds of concrete, had to dig a six foot hole in the ground (laughs) to get this thing up. I was sore for a week. It was probably the manliest thing I've ever done. Okay. Uh, (laughs) And I'm not handy at all. Uh, I'm in front of a computer guy, not, not, you know, swinging a hammer kind of guy. Um, but I love basketball. Uh, my, my eight year old boy loves basketball. And so we did this. Um, and this, this is going to sound really bad because it is, I started to get a little annoyed sometimes when neighbor kids, even when we weren't home would jump on this thing, they'd be dunking and hanging on it. And it's built for that. But I was still a little like, that's my precious basketball hoop. (laughs) But you know what? Totally. You get get that. that, Right. And all of a sudden I'm like, man, I'm trying to that old grumpy dude. Who's like, get off my property. I didn't (laughs) scream that at any kids. I swear, but I had, I had bad feelings in my heart. Let's put it that way. So, but I had this moment where I was like, oh my goodness, man, you put up this hoop There are these kids that want to just hang out and play. And so I've had a different attitude about it where it's like, I'm just going to go out there. Now we've told them when we're not here, please don't do it because it's a liability issue. We don't want, you know, people getting hurt on our property, but when we're here, they're welcome to play. I will go out there and play with them. Most of them are like eight or nine years old, so I can dominate, which was good for my ego, <laughs> especially, under the, especially under the boards, Brian. I'm just a monster uh, swatting it away. And we live in a neighborhood with a ton of kids, like families, a lot of immigrant families that have these large families that have like nine or ten kids. And, yeah, and yeah. I feel like it's it's just kind of a tangible silly way perhaps, but to engage with our neighbors and love them. And it's something that I enjoy. So that that's, (laughs) I love that. I love that. Sports are such a great
1: way to connect.
0: It's just a natural, especially, especially with little kids. Absolutely. Totally. Well, we're out of time already that cruise by, at least for me. And so I want to thank you, Brian. Um, And for the reminder too, about the Academy and the church, I think you put it so well they should be mutually supportive. They are absolutely both crucial. You can't one can't replace the other, right? I think that's a tendency sometimes yep. when the church starts trying to be the academy, or when the academy yep. starts trying to assume the authority of the church, we get into trouble. That's but they right. can be mutually edifying. Thank you so much, and listeners, uh, please join us next time. We're going to be talking to John Kelly, fantastic friend of mine, who does this amazing work. Uh, in, in prison ministry and has a powerful testimony himself spent years in, in prison. Um, and I want to remind you too to, if you can, head over, give this podcast uh, a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Uh, give us a rating that helps us out tremendously. It helps uh, introduce the podcast to others. And then just word of mouth is best too. If you enjoyed this conversation, tell a friend or family member about it. We really appreciate the help. Uh, getting the word out and uh, thanks again for listening and until next time keep reading